Malachi chapter 4. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. And guess what, y'all? Um, we did it again. Uh, we are, again, finishing uh, an entire working through of another book in the Bible. This is God being kind to us and good to us. Y'all should clap for that. We don't walk through some books in the Bible. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Since Pillar was born in uh, August 2019, we have walked through, th- we've preached more than this, but we've walked through three entire books of the Bible. We walked through Ephesians in its entirety. We walked through Jude in its entirety. And now we've walked through Malachi in its entirety. And I want to just share with you why we do that. We walk through books of the Bible on purpose. We walk through books of the Bible uh, so that it ensures that we don't miss anything to what God has said for us. All of the scriptures are important. We walk through books of the Bible to ensure that you're not getting your pastor's favorite topics, but that you're getting everything that God's word may say on any given topic in any given arena, and it's all governed and dictated by whatever the text says. And so we can't hide from anything. We can't avoid anything. We simply have no choice but to uh, encounter God in his word and see what it is he has to say and that he will make it applicable in our, in our day and in our time. We want to make sure that you guys get a balanced diet of what God has to say. And so this morning we get the privilege of wrapping up Malachi chapter 4 and we're going to see what the prophet Malachi has to say on this concept of the theme of Malachi which is true worship. God is calling us to give him true worship. Notice I said true worship. I didn't say perfect worship because that's impossible. You can't worship him perfectly. Notice I didn't say uh, empty physical actions. That's not what he's calling us to. You know, the, the going through the motions type of worship. That's not what God desires from us. He also doesn't desire box check faith from us where we do what we do simply to feel good about doing what we said we were going to do. Oh, I'm guilty of that myself. But he doesn't want box check faith from us. He wants your heart. God wants an authentic love relationship with you birthed out of his love for you and your response to that love. We opened up this series by looking at three words, four words from the book of Malachi chapter one. You'll see that in your cross reference sheet. God opened up the book of Malachi by telling his people four words. He says, I have loved you. That's what he said. He said, I have loved you. If you're a Christian here this morning, I want you to hear this from me. God wants you to remember that, uh, remember his love for you. He wants you to remember his love for you. He wants you to remember that despite your present circumstances, no matter how rough they may be, because that's the context in the book of Malachi. The people of God are in a hard situation and God is no stranger to hard situations. And so he reminds them that I love you. Despite what you're going through. All of these hard circumstances that we face, and I know that some of y'all are having hard circumstances. I have hard circumstances. We all do, right? We have tough seasons. And sometimes seasons feel like, what's, what's two seasons? How do you say that? Two seasons. And it feels like it's a whole year of toughness that stretches out into three years of, of hard times, right? It feels long sometimes, and it's painful sometimes, and it's weary. It wearies the bones. The people of Israel were in Babylonian captivity for 70 years. Entire lifetimes. People were born at the beginning of captivity and did not see their homeland for, until they were 70-something years old. Hard times. 
It's real, but it's not new. And we have a tendency to think that because hard times are hitting us, we're the only ones who have experienced it. And then we wonder, where is God in the midst of the hard times? And so God inspires Malachi to talk to the people of Judah to remind them that in spite of the hard times, I still love you. And I'm leading you closer to me. Your hard times are meant to draw you in to me. We have to fight the urge that when we're experiencing hard circumstances to retreat from God. Because I don't know about y'all, but we do that. When we're going through something hard, you don't just retreat from God. You retreat from God's people too, amen? Do y'all do that? Come on, I do it. I know y'all do it, right? You, you kind of hermit crab yourself. And God's like, no, I'm here and I love you. And I put people around you to show you my love. And sometimes we're just bitter and we don't want to receive God's love. And so we isolate his, manifest, his manifested presence of love through people from around us so we can sit and simmer in our bitterness towards God. Though he's displaying love all around us. And I know I've done that. Sometimes You ever been mad and you just wanted to be mad? And when someone tried to cheer you up, you got even more angry, right? That, that's that's kind of like the micro version of what we do with God when we feel like our circumstances are unfair and that God didn't work, so to speak. We hermit crab ourselves and we try to push away any visual or, 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 or audible version um, of his blessing toward us so that we can simmer because we feel like we have the right to. And God is saying, nah, chill. I love you. I'm here for you, and I display my love for you. If you're a Christian here this morning, I want you to know that your circumstances don't define you. Your circumstances not only don't define you, they're, men, they're, 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 they're there to lead you closer to Jesus. You're not unlovable. You're not unwanted. You're not useless. You're not even giftless. I've heard that from Christians. I don't even know what I... No, you got, you got, you got gifts. I mean, I know what it is, but God has blessed you. You're his. You got gifts to be used for his glory. Because of your faith in Jesus, you're loved, you're redeemed, you're uniquely special. I don't know who needs to hear this this morning, but one of y'all do. I'm gonna tell that person, whoever needs to hear this this morning, don't walk by your feelings because feelings are deceptive and feelings are often wrong. Don't walk by sight because things are not as often what they truly are as what they seem. Sorry, baby, it's okay, just take it off your foot. I'm going to call you to do this. I'm going to call you to do what 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says. Walk by faith. Trust that what God said is real and walk in that. Let that guide you. Hard. Easier said than done. I can tell you that and then go and do opposite even now. No, I'm just telling you what we all need to know, hear, and heed. Walk by faith. And consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. That's Romans 8, 18. If you're not a Christian this morning, I want you to hear this. Listen to this. God wants you to know that you also are not invisible before him. God sees you too. If you're not a Christian this morning or you're not sure where you stand with God, I want to tell you just like as a believer, you're not invisible to God. You as somebody who doesn't know Jesus is not invisible to God. He sees you and he knows you as well. He knows that you've been searching for truth in all the wrong places. He knows that you've been searching for acceptance in all the wrong people. You're daily groping in the darkness for purpose, but you keep stubbing your toe and you wonder what's wrong. He sees you and he also sees your sin. Sin that you will one day have to reckon with before God.
And he wants you to know that truth is only found in the person of Jesus. Acceptance is guaranteed in the person of Jesus. Purpose is only truly walked out under the revelation of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. And forgiveness is guaranteed and found in the person of Jesus. Guys, this morning's text in the book of Malachi is all about Jesus, though it never mentions his name. And that's the reality of all of the book the books of the scriptures. They're all pointing us to one person, Jesus Christ. And though it never mentions his name, God knows that Jesus is the one that we need to know. And so let's see how from this text we can find the person of Jesus because Jesus is the point of the passage. Look in your copy of God's Word, Malachi chapter 4. We're doing 4 through 6. You're going to look at each verse individually. Verse 4 says this. It says, remember the instruction of Moses, my servant, the statutes and ordinances I commanded him at Horeb for Israel. Now, Horeb, just so you all know what that is, that's Mount Sinai. Okay, that's when 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 Moses came down on the mountain and he had the Ten Commandments at that place. That's what Horeb is, is in this text. God is reminding his people about the covenant that their forefathers made back in the days of Moses. Can you all hear me? You all following me? Man, I, I don't like masks. Keep them on. I'm just saying I don't like them. He's telling them to remember the instruction of Moses, my servant. So he's hearkening their minds back to when the people of Israel made a covenant with God next to the mountain in Horeb. The Israelites used to wear tassels around their waist with the blue cord around it. And that would be a symbol for them to remember the ordinances and instructions and laws of the Lord. In fact, it should be in your cross-reference sheet. Look what it says in Numbers 15. The, the, the passage that speaks of this is so full of substance. I want you guys, your eyes to fall on it in Numbers 15. The Lord said to Moses, it's Numbers 15, verse 37 through 41. For those of you who don't have a cross-reference sheet, Numbers 15, 37 through 41. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and tell them throughout their generations, they are to make tassels for the corners of their garments and put a blue cord on the tassels of each corner. Verse 39, key verse. These will serve as tassels for you to look at so that you may remember all the Lord's commands. Now, look at what he's about to say. Just you guys maybe have never seen this. This is incredible. So do you remember all the Lord's commands and obey them and what? And not prostitute yourselves by following what? Your own heart or your own eyes. Wow! The passage is incredible. It's so cool. Verse 40, this way you will remember and obey all my commands and be holy to your God. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord, your God. God is wanting us to remember. It's when we forget we get in trouble. And he says, no, put the tassels on so you can remember that I'm the God that redeemed you out of Egypt. But not only are we supposed to remember the laws of the Lord. He also wants us to remember the response to those laws that were given from the people of God during this time. Look in your sheet again. Exodus verse chapter 24. This is how they responded to God's laws and ordinances. And this is often how we respond. Moses came to them and told the people all the commandments of the Lord and all the ordinances. Then all the people responded 
with a single voice, what did they say? They said, we will do everything that the Lord has commanded. And then it happened again in verses uh, verses 7 through 8. He then took the covenant scroll and read aloud to the people. They responded, we will do and obey all that the Lord has commanded. And if you remember when we talked about what a covenant was, it's not making a covenant, it's cutting a covenant. You guys remember that? Where they cut, they were, and so that's what he does in verse 8. He says that Moses took the blood and splattered it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that I have, in English it says make, but we know it means cut, that I have cut with you concerning all these words. The people of Israel made an agreement or a promise with God that he would be their God and that they would be his people. At this point in their history, they knew that God loved them because God had just redeemed them from the the tyranny of the king, the Pharaoh of Egypt and those Egyptian gods. Their hearts were full of gratitude towards God for what he has done. And it's when our hearts are full of gratitude towards God for what he has done that it's easy to be like, yo, we're going to do everything you commanded us. It ain't ain't a thing. That's what we say to God when things are good. But when things get hard, things change. Or do they? What do we know about the hearts of people? They're fickle. Just a few chapters after they said we're going to do everything the Lord commanded, they made a golden calf. Instead of worshiping that instead and saying, this is the God that took us out of the land of Egypt. They already, their fickle hearts were already on display just a few chapters later. And I think that our fickle hearts do the exact same thing. We're, we, only do, we only do what our emotions tell us and want us to do so oftentimes. Like at a wedding, where you stand before your bride and your, your groom, and you guys say, for better or for worse, what do y'all say? I do. And as long as things is better, y'all Gucci. But as soon as things get worse, you start rethinking that, right? We're we're fickle at heart. Some of y'all will relate to this. I relate to this because this is in my family history. Like that promise that you made that you was going to stop drinking. I'm done with the alcohol, babe, I promise. But then you have a really hard day. And you're like, man, I had a really hard day. I just need a little taste. A little taste ain't going to hurt nobody. But you said doesn't matter anymore because your emotions, your desires are drawing you away from the covenant or the promise that you made. Eventually, the people of Judah broke their covenant with God. Remember, they started sacrificing lame and sick animals to God, thinking it was cool. They started divorcing the wives of their youth and they started marrying women of foreign gods. And eventually their children would come out as anything but worshiping the Lord. The people of God were faithless because they forgot the law, the heart of the law. And that's what happens when we forget our promises. That's the key. We can remember what we said, but it's the heart behind what we said that's going to hold us. You can say whatever you want, but it's the heart behind it that's going to hold us. And the people were faithless because they forgot the heart behind the law of God, which was the love of God. See, the laws and statutes that God gave become a burden or a pain when we forget the heart or the reason behind them. Things become a burden when you forget why they're there. When I was a little kid, I don't know about how y'all grew up, when my grandmother used to have plastic on the couches. And I was heated. 
Because you lay on it and you just start sweating and you be in a pool of plastic. I ain't the only one. Come on, some of y'all grandmama do that. Right, y'all grandmama had the plastic on the couches and you sit on it, it's like Right, you can't even sneak in that room. And I'd be so mad like, Grandma, ah, take it off. It's, my friends ain't even comfortable in here. I don't care about your friend. <laughs> but there was a purpose. See, in my grandmother's house, that was the most valuable asset we had was our nice furniture in that one side room that we weren't supposed to be in in the first place. And she was trying to preserve a little bit of history and a little bit of wealth for her people by saying, y'all can look at that, but don't touch it. It's going to be worth something someday. But I appreciate it because I didn't understand the heart behind it. It's like taking your shoes off at the door. Kids, it's like having to go to bed early. Kids, it's like having to go to bed early. Kids, kids, like having to go to bed early. Appreciate that. Come on, parents, back your boy up. Appreciate that. Uh Uh-huh. Because the heart behind them telling that is for your own well-being. See, that's an easy, something easy for us to understand. You say go to bed at 5 p.m., <clears throat> 6 p.m., <clears throat> no, I'm saying I'm playing. You tell you go to bed early for your own good, because you know you're cranky if you don't get enough sleep. We tell you to eat all your vegetables so that you can be strong and not have body ailments and sicknesses and diseases later in life. I wish we followed our own advice. The same thing with these Old Testament laws. God's laws were not just 600-plus arbitrary rules that we had to follow, that people had to follow, but they were, uh, they were quickly become that if we take them out of context. This is what the law was. This is why the law is good. Let me give you the purpose behind the Old Testament laws. The law was a reflection of God's holy character because they came from him. The law was meant to keep a distinction between his people and other people. That's why they were there. The law was meant to promote maximum holiness and social unity. It was for our good. The law was given to protect the seed. If you're a theological head, then the law was put in place to protect the seed of Abraham that was to come. The law was given to drive you closer to God. The law was good. But over time, they lost sight of the purpose of the law. And we, too, need to be careful not to lose sight of the ultimate purpose of the law. Above all things, the law was meant to reveal your need of a savior. That's why it was there. And guess what? That's the ultimate good. That's a good thing. Anything that points you to the savior is a good thing. You ever wonder why Paul says the law is not bad? Because it's doing something to you and leading you to someone. Paul says that in Galatians, he reorients our understanding of the law by reminding us the law was never meant to save us. That's in your cross-reference sheet. That was never the purpose of the law. But you see, a good thing turns into a damnable thing if we use it for the wrong purpose. And so the law's purpose wasn't to save anybody. That's not why it was there. It's like hammering a screw. You try to do it, and it's just painful, and it just hurts because it wasn't meant to do it. Paul tells us that the law was, was added because of transgressions. Cross-reference sheet, Galatians 3, verse 19 through 26. Paul clarifies for us its purpose. He says, why then was the law given? It was added for the sake of transgressions until the seed who would come, until the seed to whom the promise was made would come. Verse 21, is the law therefore contrary to the promise? Absolutely not. That's the promise that God gave to Abraham. He's saying the law is not going to cancel out the promise that God gave. For the law had been 
For if, keyword if, highlight if, for if the law had been granted the ability to give life, what's it, what's it telling you? It was never granted that ability in the first place. If it was granted with the ability to give life, then righteousness would certainly be on the basis of the law. But what does scripture do? Scripture imprisoned everything under sin's power so that then the promise might be given on the basis of faith in Jesus to those who believe. Verse 23, before this faith came, we were confined under the law and imprisoned, key word, underline, until the coming faith was revealed. Verse 24, big verse, verse 24 and 25. It says, the law then was our guardian until, underline, key word, until Christ, so that we could be justified by faith. But since that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Therefore, or for, through faith, you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. When the people of Judah are told to remember the statutes and the ordinances and the commands of God, they're not only to remember the physical commands that God had given them, they're being called to remember the heart behind it. And only when you remember the heart behind the law will it drive you to the Savior and not be a burden unto you. It's like a fire. Is fire a good thing? Yes. Until it's in your wall. Right? right, Great thing in a fireplace, but when it's in the wrong place, it does major damage. And that's what the law has done, and that's what some of us has done. We think that by abiding by the law, we're going to find favor with God. But you will not find favor with God in the law because everybody's imprisoned under sin. Since Adam, the law can no longer redeem. No one can keep it. And because no one can keep it, its purpose is not for you to keep it. Its purpose is to drive you to the one who kept it. And if he kept it and we're in him, then what did we do? We kept it. And so the point is to get in Christ and the laws fulfilled for you. Pillar Church, we're a part of something called the new covenant, not that old covenant of Herod. That's not, that's not for us now. We're under something called the new covenant, but there are still New Testament laws that ought to be followed and ought to be obeyed. There's a whole theology behind that. I want to explain it. Don't have time. Every New Testament command ought to be followed with diligence and intentionality. That doesn't mean you don't try to follow the law. It means you do follow the law. You want to follow the law. But what's the motive behind your following the law? Is it out of gratitude and respect for what God has done and your desire to be holy as he is holy? Or are you following the law, hoping to find favor with God? And then, like I said a few weeks ago, when you follow the law and God doesn't give you favor, you say God is broken and he doesn't work because that's not how favor works. It doesn't work by a works-based, I did what you told me to do system. If we lose sight of the heart behind the law, it'll become a burden. The New Testament law is called the law of Christ, and it's also called the law of love. You find that in your cross-reference sheet. And it's when we obey and understand the law of love that we will be Redeemed. Look what it says in Romans chapter 5 in your cross-reference sheet, verses 1 and 2 and 6 through 9. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through him by faith into his grace in which we stand. We boast in the hope of the glory of God. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person, perhaps someone might dare even to die. But God proves his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been justified by his blood, will we be saved from wrath? Guys, God's law is to point you to the Savior of the world. And no matter who or what covenant you live in, if you understand that the purpose of the law is to drive you closer to Jesus, then you are remembering the heart of the law of love. God wants you in his presence. If you recall from last Sunday, we said that God's wrath and his gracious love are simultaneously displayed in something the Bible calls the day of the Lord. Y'all remember talking about the day of the Lord? It's the day when God's wrath and his gracious love simultaneously come here before us. For some of us, it'll be a day of joy, and for others, it'll be a day of dread and misery. I like to call it the day of reckoning, right? It's the day of God's presence before us. It's when he makes himself known. God promised to send a sign of when this day would come. But if you're thinking about that concept of when God reckons or when God makes himself known, your mind should start to think, wait a minute. Didn't 2,000 years ago, God the Son already make his presence known and come before a people and show himself and become close to mankind? Yes. Yes, he did. God said that he would send a sign. Now, understanding that 2,000 years ago something happened, that sounds a little bit of the day of the Lord. I'm going to explain that in an illustration. You might have heard me say this before, but in the year 2000, I got to go to Disney World. It was, it was banging, right? We got off the airplane, and we hopped on the bus. And we get on the bus, and you're like, I'm a little kid, right? I'm like, yo, Disney, right? You got the Disney bus, Mickey Mouse is on the side of the bus, and all the people all dressed up in the thing, and they're like, hey, Heidi Ho, and all this, right? And I get on the bus, and I'm, I'm giddy, and I'm antsy. You know, little kids, are we there? Are we there? That's what I'm doing. I'm like, I'm all jacked up. I, I want to get there. I want to get there, right? And as we're driving, I'm looking out the window, and I'm just, you don't see nothing. If you've been on that bus from the airport to, you don't see nothing. This is forest, right? There's trees and highway. And you're just like, oh, my goodness. And then all of a sudden, what happens, right? All of a sudden, you look in the distance. You're like, what's that? That little arch. You get closer. You get closer. And the arch gets big. And then what does it say on the arch? Welcome to Disney World, right? And so what happens? All the kids on the bus, Disney World, right? 30 minutes later, we're still on the bus. All we see is trees, and we're like, wait a minute, we're here, right? We're there, but we're not yet there. It's almost, but not yet. It's happened, but it's not fully happened, right? It's like we're, 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 we're experiencing something, or we've got a taste of something to come, but it hasn't come in its fullness. Well, the same is true with the day of the Lord that 2,000 years ago, yes, God reckoned and came down and made himself present and fit and, and you felt his presence and he was with us. He tabernacled with us. He was there. It happened, but it only happened to a degree, not in its fullness. Yes, people, came, yes, people were judged in the presence of Christ. What do you think the Pharisees wanted to kill him for? Yes, people experienced love and grace. What do you think the woman caught in adultery experienced? Right? Things happened that were like this, but not the fullness of this. It was already, but not yet. 
in another sense, the day of the Lord has not yet come in its fullness, but in one sense, it has already been upon us. But God has given us a definitive marker as to when the day of the Lord would come. He says this in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Our text, we're back to our text, look. This is his definitive marker. He says, look, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Stop there. That's his teller. That's his tell. That's his, here's how you know. I'm going to send you Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. That is a ton to say about this verse. And time will fail us to tell it all. But what you need to know from this text is that God is simply telling us that, God, that his promise of coming, his presence coming, will happen after he sends Elijah to clear the path before him. But you know what's funny? The Bible says something about that. Look at, I'm skipping some stuff. This is not in your cross-reference sheet, what I'm about to say. So if you want to write it down, write it down. The Bible says something about the coming of Elijah. In Matthew chapter 17, verse 10. Okay, it's not in your cross-reference sheet, but you can reference it if you want. In Matthew chapter 17, verse 10, Jesus' disciples were questioning this very passage. The disciples of Jesus were like, yo, it's really good, right? You said Elijah's coming. This is what they said, I quote. It says, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Now, the answer that Jesus gives to this question is vital for understanding the heart of that passage. And it's going to give us a little bonus as Jesus gives us a little bit of his own identity in answering the passage. Jesus answers them in verse 11 of Matthew chapter 17. Here's what he says. Jesus said, Elijah is coming and will restore everything. But then this is what he says in verse 12. Y'all listening? Y'all listening? All right. But I tell you, Elijah has already come. And they didn't recognize him. When he come? When did the prophet Elijah reveal himself? How, when? I don't remember that. When did it happen? I don't remember that. Verse 13. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. We see another interesting thing in Matthew chapter 11, verse 14, describing the ministry of John the Baptist. This is what it says in Matthew eleven fourteen. Again, that's not in your cross-reference sheet. Jesus says, and if you're willing to accept it, he, John the Baptist, is the Elijah who was to come. Let anyone who has ears listen. Y'all remember the ministry of John the Baptist? John the Baptist was the one who lived in the wilderness and had a ministry of baptism of repentance. And he said, I'm here to clear the path so that I'm here to simply point the finger at the Messiah when he shows up so that he can increase and I can decrease. I was sent before the son of God to show you who he was. I was going to reveal him to you. That's my duty. That's my job. And those who understand that they have to trust in the Messiah will come to me and be baptized with the baptism of repentance because they were used to trusting in their ethnicity instead and he says no you have to be you have to repent to be right with God repenting of your sins is the means by which we have communion with him again is turning from sin and trusting in faith and so that's his ministry and then who shows up on the scene the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and Jesus is calling that man Elijah Luke chapter 1, again, not in your cross-reference sheet, verse 16 through 17, referring to John the Baptist, says this. 
This is Luke writing this. He says, this is what John the Baptist's ministry will look like. And it reminds us of our passage in Malachi. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the, right, of, of the righteousness to make ready the Lord a prepared people. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying that John the Baptist is a, the Elijah of Malachi chapter 4. But here's the goose egg. Well, if, if, if John the Baptist is the Elijah of Malachi chapter 4 that reveals the Lord, but the duty of Elijah is to reveal the Lord, then what's Jesus saying about himself? He's saying, I am Yahweh. I am God. He's reminding everybody who he is by answering who Elijah is because John's duty is to usher in the presence of God and Elijah's duty is to usher in the presence of God. And if John the Baptist ushers in Jesus, then Elijah is ushering in God. Christian, that should give you an immense hope because you know when you pray in Jesus' name, you're talking to the commander-in-chief himself. And he said he loves you because he is the God of Malachi. And Jesus said at the beginning, I don't know if it was the Father, the Son, or the Spirit, but they're in accord, and when they say, I have loved you, I got you, I'm for you, my blood redeems you. If you're not a Christian, I got good news for you. There's no more mystery as to who God is. Because God has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. The one you need to be speaking to is him. That's grace. He chose not to hide from you. He's right here for you to speak to, talk to, cry to, repent to. You know, it's crazy. So that's not even amazing anymore that God will reveal himself to us. I fear the day. If there ever is ever a day, I don't believe a day will come, but I fear a day that he removes his presence from us. It's like removing air from the world, just suffocating, instantly suffocating. The mission of Jesus is to do what Galatians 1.4 says. He promises us to save us from this present evil age. If you're a Christian, I want you to take solace like the psalmist did in Psalm 62. It's in your cross-reference sheet. This is, this is the words of what somebody who trusts in God can say. And I want you to use these words whenever you feel shaken. The psalmist says, I am at rest in God alone. Sometimes you've got to tell yourself, yourself these things. Right? Psalm 103. I will, yeah, sometimes some of the psalms are Jesus commanding his own soul to remember these things. Right? I am at rest in God alone. My salvation comes from the law. Is that what it said? Nope. Your salvation doesn't come from the law. Your salvation doesn't come from your acts of obedience. Your salvation doesn't come from your ethnicity. Your salvation doesn't come by who it is that you helped on the street last week. Your salvation is in who? Alone. Him. I am at rest in God alone. My salvation comes from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation and my strongholds. I will never be shaken. You know why we're so often shaken? Because we're trusting in us. If he's not our rock, we're easily shaken. But we remember that he is our rock. We're not. 
If you're not a believer, Jesus is the one you need to be chasing after. Jesus is the one that you need to be seeking for. Seek him now and you will know him as Savior. But if you seek him later, you will know him as judge. Going back to the text, what's the ministry of Elijah going to look like? Look at verse 6. Sounds a lot like what we read in the book of Luke. And he will turn the hearts of their fathers, I mean, he'll turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. This brings us back full circle. Remember at the beginning of the sermon when I said that we, it's, it's important not just to remember the external understandings of the law, but the heart behind the law, right? That's just as important as knowing what the laws are. Well, Elijah has come to turn the people's hearts back to a disposition that their forefathers had, that their forefathers had. So we read that and we automatically think a father and a child, but this is talking about a covenantal level, a covenantal perspective. And he's saying, no, I'm reminding you of your forefathers. I'm going to return your hearts back to the response that they gave God at Mount Horeb when he said, I will do all that you have commanded us to do. That's the, that's the, the ministry, the job of the Elijah that's to come. Back when they had a heart of gratitude for God, for what he has done, and a heart of trust for what he's going to do. And he caused the people to repent, and he caused them away from false, outward-only religion, and he caused them to entrust their hearts and minds to the Lord who loves them. And that is my call to you. You know if your relationship with God is purely external. You know if you do or don't know the Lord of heaven and earth. You know if you're seeking to please God by your own acts of worship towards him. Well, your worship, your righteousness, your acts are filthy rags before him. If that is what you're trusting in to have a relationship with God. God is gracious and he comes to you with words of I love you. And we love him as a response of his gracious love for us. He's calling you to remember not just the things he's asked you to do, but the heart behind the things, which is your, for your benefit and for his glory alone. Have you been infatuated with obedience-based faith over an authentic heart change? Only you know the answer to that. Remember, anyone can look obedient from the outside, but God sees the heart and your actions. And it would be a horrible thing for the Lord himself to call you a hypocrite. You can fool me. All of y'all can fool me. But the day of the Lord is upon us. And there will come a day of reckoning in which only God himself will know the truth behind your physical outward manifestations of false worship. God is calling you, Christian, and you, non-Christians, you Christians who have fallen into the trap of a works-based faith, because that happens from time to time for a believer, and those non-believers, those non-Christians, those who don't know, he's calling us to the same thing. That's why the gospel is the answer for everybody. He's calling us to trust and believe that Jesus gave his life and became a curse to save people just like you from their sins. That's Galatians 3.13. Notice the passage in Malachi. What did it say? It says, 
And I will turn the hearts of their fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. The only means to escape the curse that God will send through a strike is to have faith in the God who became a curse on your behalf. The whole passage points us to one person. The offer of salvation is there for all of you to take. And if you've already taken it, the offer of salvation is there for you to rest in. Because he is your rock and your salvation. This is what Jesus said. Who did he say it to? Everybody. He said, he said, come to me. Cross-reference sheet, Matthew 11. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Christian, you're trying to work for your, for your, to keep your salvation? No. Go to him. He gives you rest. Those of you who don't, know, don't believe, don't know Jesus Christ, come to him. He gives you rest. Stop looking for satisfaction and acceptance in the wrong people, in the wrong places. Everything will bite you back. Everything will bite you back. Remember a couple months ago, not to get political, but remember a couple months ago, Andrew Cuomo, the hero for the pandemic, what's happening now? Get him out of here. Stop, don't put your trust in anybody or anything. Don't, don't love it. Jesus is who you can trust. That's who you go to. That's who you rest in. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened. That doesn't mean you don't use wisdom. It means you use wisdom, but you trust God. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened. Faith and foolishness are very closely connected. Faith is finding yourself in a hard situation and trusting God to get you out. But foolishness is putting yourself in a bad situation and trusting, asking God to get you, get you out. They're very close, but they're not the same thing. And it's foolish to trust in yourself. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. Whew. I need that yoke. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Malachi told us in Malachi chapter 1, verse 2, he says, I have loved you, says the Lord. And the ultimate expression of his love is found in the person of Christ. Go to him. Go to him and find rest for your souls. And may your only response be true worship. Father, thank you so much for the book of Malachi. There's so much in it. There's so much beauty, there's so much foreshadowing, there's so much Jesus in this Old Testament book that our hearts need and crave. And I pray, Lord, that you would lead us all to him, more him, more Jesus. We sang this morning, give me Jesus. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. Lord, I pray that you, would, that you would make that a reality for us, that, that we would have you above all things, that we would trust in you above all things. Open our eyes to the beauty of the Savior. God, redeem us from our sin and drive us closer to you. In Jesus' name, we thank you and pray. Amen.